You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You can find me online at JackieDaily.com. Jackie No E, daily like every day. Also on the X at Jackie Daily Host. And uh, also on Facebook, even though I've been shadow banned to hell, uh, you'll have a hard time finding me. You have to look for me. Uh, they do everything they can to hold me down as I as I proselytize against their their uh, corporate religion, which apparently is climate change or election integrity, one of the two. Um, but I am there. The Jackie Daly Show. You can find me on Instagram, Jackie Daly. Okay, I have here in front of me two decks of cards. It has now become fashionable for, you know, nonprofits or political operatives to put together decks of cards. I think it's clever. I really, really, really like it. So the two decks that I have are, uh, the first one is a gift from Alex Epstein from last week. I went to his event here in Dallas. And as you know, uh, he has a similar mission to mine. He wrote the moral case for fossil fuels. He basically explains that human flourishing is our goal and we flourish best with fossil fuels. And in fact, billions of us will die without them. Uh, Makes a compelling case. He's been on the show. He's a friend. So he has this whole deck of cards, literally, you know, Joe Biden, Larry Fink, Bernie Sanders, the New York Times, Elon Musk. Let me give you an example. Okay. Joe Biden is the jack of clubs. I'm not sure why. Uh, It says, ran for president on, I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel. That's crazy. And upon his inauguration, began threatening the fossil fuel industry, shut down a vital pipeline, and banned leasing on federal lands. Then he denied all responsibility when prices went up. Okay, so those of you in this space know exactly who Larry Fink is. Heads up BlackRock, right now getting his tail suit off by the state of Tennessee uh, for misleading them on their pension investments, I believe it was. It was a deceptive practices kind of lawsuit. Anyway, Larry Fink, business leader, king of diamonds, has used his position as the world's largest seller of index funds to pressure companies into one, making disastrous net zero commitments, and two, lobbying for anti-fossil fuel policies. Both have disastrously reduced the world's energy supply. Okay, so you kind of get the feeling for what this is. Well, the second deck that I have is actually Texas politicians. I don't know who put this together. Uh, You can find it very easily. It's called thehouseofbadcards.com. Thehouseofbadcards.com. Basically, these are Democrats and Republicans. So whoever created this is an equal opportunity offender. And uh, it's, I'm going to say, told from the conservative side's eyes, maybe. Uh, For example, the Joker, one of them, is Dade Phelan, the infamous speaker who tried to take out one of the most popularly elected officials in the state, Ken Paxton, the people's choice. And... uh, (laughs) It gives you, you know, basically an overview of who Dade Phelan is, why he's the Joker, what his biggest actions were, what you should think about it. And so I don't know who put this together, but I wrote back to the person who sent it to me, you know, my thoughts. First of all, the big spenders and the sellouts should be the diamonds, right? 
they've got like, you know, the, the king of donkeys and the queen of donkeys. I'm like, no, you know what? Just have it be kings, queens of diamonds, spades, hearts, whatever. Obviously, the big spenders and the sellouts are the diamonds, clearly. And the coercers, right? People who are all about lockdowns and mask mandates and all that, they're, they're the clubs. They're the clubs. They're the coercers. People who vote pro-life are the, the hearts. Like, you know, I don't know, Carrie Lake. Um, the non-PC people who tell the truth, like say, I don't know, Jackie from the Jackie Daly Show, these people should be spades. Why? Because you call a spade a spade. So it's too bad there's not like a, you know, a perfect suit for backstabbers and liars and betrayers. Um, I'll take your ideas. But anyway, I, this is kind of clever, but I thought they missed some opportunities here. I definitely would have done this deck of cards a little bit differently. But it's worth taking a look. As I said, they got Democrats and Republicans here. They've got Jeff Leach up in Collin County, who you know, famously helped lead the charge against Kim Paxton, even though he's in Kim Paxton's county. He's the, uh, <laughs> he's the uh, queen of diamonds. He's a queen. That's awesome. You know, I used to like Jeff Leach. Haven't seen him uh, since that unfortunate day earlier this year, but when I see him and, and a few others, I'll ask them, uh, why they did what they did, trying to take away, you know, a, a an attorney general that won re-election by double digits. Clearly, the people wanted him. Everyone knew all of the things they had to say against him. The guy's been under indictment for like nine years, which tells you everything you need to know. If they had a case against him, they would have gone forward. But instead, they want to be able to tell you every election that he's under indictment. So they just keep him under indictment. That should tell you everything you need to know. Nine years of indictment. You know what? I think the same thing could happen with the president. If, if you don't want to have to show your hands and that you don't have anything, and you just want to make this a PR, you know, get as much mileage out of this PR stunt as possible, probably, maybe you never try him. Maybe it's another Ken Paxton. Who knows? Because right now, the headlines just keep flowing. Every time you turn around, they have more mileage, more angles. I know. Let's keep them off the ballot in Colorado. Uh, you know, big story. Totally unconstitutional. Big story. Force the Supreme Court to jump in there and have to, you know, apply some sanity. So they'll get blamed for whatever happens. Um, okay, anyway. That's not really what I wanted to talk about. I thought the deck of cards were cool. I should probably make my own. But like I told you, I, I'm gonna have to, I, need, I need your ideas for backstabbers, liars, and betrayers. I don't know exactly what suit you belong in. Um, I'll work on that. And the jokers could be you know, very broad. Could be anyone. Probably Kamala. Probably Kamala. Okay. Anyway, like I said, what was it? Bad <laughs> houseofbadcards.com for Texas politics. Look it up. I think it's worth it. Um, interestingly, I almost had the opportunity to confront one of these house managers against Paxton uh, last week. 
I'm not kidding you. I, I, I went to the Dallas Country Club, which I never go there. I'm not a member. And um, I had dinner with the Speaker of the House of the U.S. House, Mr. Johnson, not Mr. Phelan of Texas. Please. That would have been an impolite encounter. Um, so, yeah, totally unexpected. Wasn't expecting to have that on the calendar at all. And uh, there he was with like six security guys. <laughs> And um, another acquaintance of mine who clearly had had too much to drink didn't notice that Speaker Johnson was at the table and walked in there screaming profanities with glee, you know, excited to see everybody and, uh, I mean, F-bombs and all in the Dallas Country Club. F this, F that, and he doesn't see the speaker sitting right there yelling all of our names, making a huge scene. I mean... The speaker's security was freaking out because this guy was running and slapping all of us on the back and yelling and in pure delight. I mean, I, it, you know, some people, when they have too much to drink, it, it was all, <laughs> it was weird. It was over the top weird. It was very uncomfortable. Speaker Johnson, totally cool about it. He said, look, I, you know, I forget which, which fraternity it was. He's like, come on, I'm from Louisiana and I was a frat guy, Okay. I can handle this. I can handle this. Because, you know, he has a reputation as being a, uh, a litigator for Christian conservative causes. It's very, very strange. Where was that? Where, where did I come from with this? Um, we did not know because the place was practically empty, actually. The sitting literally, I don't know, 10 foot from us, maybe, in the only other table that was occupied in the whole dining room was... Morgan Meyer, my rep, who helped lead the charge against Kim Paxton. There with his family, polite dinner, we're there with the speaker. It was not the time for me to raise unpleasant conversations, um, but I will. I will. It's the first time I've seen any of them since that all went down, and I felt a bit like restrained and like my hands were tied. I complimented his wife's jewelry, which was amazing, I'll admit. But um, anyway, that was what happened last week. Great talk with um, Speaker Johnson. I, you know, I don't betray confidences. Um, I don't. I don't just just put on a loudspeaker on my show conversations I have with influential people because I want them to keep having the conversations with me and not, <laughs> uh, you know, feel like I'm a I'm a walking uh, loudspeaker or parrot. So I don't do that. Um, I will only say, because I know I, I have uh, very little time left. I'll only say, had a really good impression of him. I'd never met him. Didn't know him. He's one of the few members I don't know at all because I worked there for seven years. Um, he came after I'd left. And, you know, um, I have a little bit of hope. <laughs> I came away with a little bit of hope. It was great. We were together for like two or three hours. Um and, uh, yeah, a totally unexpected treat, actually, for me. So let me think more about if I can share anything we talked about. Probably not. And I'll go to break for a second. All right, you're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Find me online at JackieDaly.com. 
on the X at Jackie Daily Host, Instagram and Facebook. Okay, I've told you before that um, the Endangered Species Act list, like the list of endangered species, that's where species go to die. You know, if you go on that list, this does not bode well for you in terms of being restored, which is supposed to be the goal of the act. However, comma, you'd be surprised at how many species um, are miraculously recovered. So, so declares federal bureaucrats, which actually were never endangered in the first place. So, you, you know, you claim a win uh, when in fact you're hiding errors of counting the animals in the past. There are all kinds of shenanigans that go on uh, inside federal agencies and, and those who do oversight of them. Um, fortunately, I have one on the line right now who was responsible for oversight of federal agencies while working on Capitol Hill and elsewhere, uh, similar to my background. His name is Rob Gordon. He's worked environmental issues for over three decades, senior advisor to the director of the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, served in the Department of the Interior, the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, Senior Advisor on Endangered Species for the House Natural Resources Committee, on and on. Um, also played a primary role in uh, the Threatened and Endangered Species Recovery Act. So he's truly an expert. Welcome to the show, Rob Gordon. Jackie, it's great to join you. Great to have you here. So uh, you heard my introduction. I see here that you have a new study um, by Western Caucus Foundation that you can comment on, essentially saying that after 50 years, um, the Endangered Species Act has recovered less than 2% of species. Yet, I see in the same uh, description that some species were routinely, the word is routinely, listed in error, magically recovered uh, to hide errors. So, Look, when I tell people this stuff, because I've been talking about this for a long time, it's like people have a hard time believing this. Um, how could you, how could you, for example, claim, I don't know, that there are only 18 monito geckos left on Earth because you counted during the day and then you realize, oh, this is a nocturnal animal? We missed 99.7% of them, right? These shenanigans go down. Rob, what I need you to do is uh, bear witness to this. Um, what? Okay, let, let's start with 2%. Why can it be true? What, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> or are we intentionally yeah. doing something wrong? That only 2% of the species that go on this list ever get revived. Isn't, there, isn't that the whole point of it? It is. In fact, um you know, the law defines conservation as bringing a species to the point where you can essentially take it off the list. Yeah. Um, when I try to describe the ESA to people, you know, like most things in Washington, it's big and complicated. Um, but if you simplified it, uh, the agencies that are implementing it, their job is to identify uh, species, animals and plants that are in immediate in danger uh, of extinction or likely uh, to become uh, endangered in the foreseeable future. And then they're supposed to put them on a list, use the, the, the regulations and authorities they have uh, under the law to fix them up and then take them off, right? 
So that seems pretty sensible and something uh, I think most people are supportive of. Uh, the devil's in the details, though. You know, we've been doing this for 50 years, and uh, a lot of people who are the advocates of the law have been telling us, well, you know, it, it takes time. Uh, just give it time, and we'll, we'll, it'll bear fruit. And here we are, um, a half century later, the federal government has taken off uh, 62 species and said, you know, great news, these species are recovered. But when you really dig into the, de- the details, they turn out to be things like the Manito gecko, um, <laughs> where they were uh, put on the list uh, based on an assumption that they were being uh, that there was a, a really low number that they declined because they were getting eaten by invasive black rats, and subsequently um, the agency, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, has acknowledged there's no evidence that one gecko was ever eaten by one rat. And um, <laughs> this is made up. Decades. This is yeah, made up, yeah, right? This is well, speculation. It's, it's total conjecture, and um, if it were one case, uh, I think you could say, well, you know, this was the way people were looking at the world. You know, they were, they were making assumptions. But, it, but it's so common that, in fact, the, you know, the majority of the species that have been taken off the list and hailed as successes really were mistakes. And if it's that pervasive, you've got to start wondering, is the goal here generally, has it, has it morphed from one of recovering species to really using the law uh, more like a, a land use control tool than a conservation tool? Right, and, um, right. And we're familiar with this in Texas big time, right? So mm-hmm. I mean, I'm here in Texas. I get a, uh, the, the show broadcast on the dial out in West Texas in the Permian Basin where you probably know uh, the dunes sagebrush lizard is constantly, you know, perennially being targeted uh, by environmentalists to try to destroy oil production in West Texas. Like if only we can say this lizard, which is native to the area, is endangered or threatened or whatever, then we can pass a law uh, or, or a reg to stop all development that could destroy or, or disturb its habitat. And the same thing happened with the lizard. I was told this by guys out in West Texas who had to watch this for their business closely. They're like, listen, they were counting these lizards and this was like during a drought year. Plus, yeah, there's, there's no water. And they're counting them at the wrong time of day, just like this gecko. And so what, we're going to take off the most prolific oil field in America that produces more than any member of OPEC, except maybe Saudi. Um, all because we want to save a lizard counted in the daytime during a drought. So this is a really big deal. This has huge implications. Couldn't this explain, you know, this this motive of trying to be anti-development, explain why they're getting things so wrong? I mean, they have a big incentive to get things wrong. Yeah, I, I, I think the, your you're right in the right ballpark. Um, the reality is when you add a species to the list, the agency gets additional regulatory authority. You know, power. They get to go out That's and power. look at any activity that affects that species. Um, when you take it off the list, the agency's regulatory authority is reduced, right? They know 
the, the species are kind of innocent bystanders to this. Um, you know, they're oblivious to what's going on, but they're being used by many as pawns, uh, essentially, so that the federal government has regulatory authority over things that it other might otherwise might not have. And there are organizations out there who just haven't uh, kind of a a worldview that there's too many people that are uh, habitats uh, disappearing and therefore there's a biodiversity crisis. Now we could, you know, spend a whole nother program together someday talking about how those are misguided notions. Um, but the misguided notions have, you know, real consequences. And when you, you look at the species they're claiming as recovered, you find over and over again that they were undercounted um, that their range was uh, underestimated, that a particular threat to them uh, really wasn't as significant, uh, or in some cases that this subspecies or species really isn't taxonomically valid. That is, <laughs> there is no such thing. You know, that's, that's a little simplistic uh, in terms of how to describe that to people. But uh, there's a plant, for example, called McGuire's Daisy that they put on the list because they thought there were only seven. And later on, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service put out a press release saying, hey, great news, there's now 163,000. <laughs> well, that would seem like a really big increase, right? But it wasn't. The, the reality was there was no change in numbers of McGuire's Daisy. They found out that the McGuire Daisy and another Daisy thought to be different were in fact the same. And when you put them the two together, you had a much bigger number. And rather than, than saying, you know what, the data were in error, we should take it off the list. Uh, they said, hey, great news. Um, y your tax dollars are working. We recovered this, this plant. Right, okay. I have to go to break. When I come back, we'll continue the conversation with Rob Gordon. And he has worked um, on Capitol Hill in the oversight committees that would oversee these federal agencies and also uh, inside the Department of the Interior. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Rob Gordon, who used to be inside the Department of Interior. He had a hand in writing a law that actually... Is, is designed to protect our endangered species. Three decades in the field, truly an expert. And we're going over the fact that uh, if you're just joining us, basically there's a new study out showing that only 2% of species are ever actually recovered after going onto the Endangered Species Act uh, list, or you know, you're threatened, you're endangered, et cetera. There are different classifications. Um, apparently some of these species were routinely listed in error some of them magically recovered to hide errors as well as wasteful costs imposed on private property owners and taxpayers like you and me. So, Rob, a few things. Um, the study shows that 60% of species delisted from the Endangered Species Act were never endangered in the first place. That two-thirds of the habitats are on private lands. So we're going to you know, tell landowners they can't use their land as they see fit, or maybe even find them. Um, and then we went through the example like the Monito Gecko. Uh, supposedly, there were only 18 of them left until supposedly they found out later that it was nocturnal. 
So they had undercounted 99.7% uh, of them were not in the count. Um, okay. <laughs> so there we are. A few thoughts. Um, the first is, it seems to me that despite these errors, which I think are inexcusable, I mean, how can you not know a species is nocturnal after you've done all the study of it uh, over a period of years, no doubt? Who knows how much money was involved and they claim they didn't know. Here's my question. Is there any accountability for the bureaucrats who claim these are mistakes that hurt people's you know, pocketbooks and freedom? Um, not so far that I know of. And, and you would know because uh, you did the oversight. You're, you're getting into a, a, a really kind of crucial, uh, you know, the crux of the issue in some respects, and, and that is scientific integrity, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, when we're going to put the wheels of government in motion and go through this process of adding a species to the list, which, by the way, just the paperwork involved can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, Um you should be doing it on uh, reliable and uh, sufficient data. They're supposed to use the best available data, um, but in sometimes uh, it, it's obvious that um, either the data was just wrong or the interpretation of it was. And it, it, it happens over and over again. And um, despite these these cases where you can look at them and say, hey, this, this thing is clearly a mistake, um, despite the federal, federal agencies um, putting in the federal register that this thing was a success, nobody ever seems to be held accountable for that. You know, it's essentially scientific misinformation. Um, the GAO pointed this out in, back in 1988 uh, with three other species that were hailed as successes, uh, but the GAO said, look, the, the reality is uh, these things were undercounted. So this has been going on um, in this program for decades, and um, the Fish and Wildlife Service has essentially gotten away with repetitively misreporting. And this is not, not – it, it, it's wrong um, just ethically. Uh, it's a scientific integrity problem. It makes Congress's oversight job uh, more difficult, and it also misinforms the public as to what's going on. Right. Well, the other the other thought I had is that maybe <clears throat> maybe some of this is actually let's assume they were being accurate. Let's assume they were accurately counting a species, not playing any sleight of hand, actually trying to do their job. Um, isn't it true? that the loss of species over time, certain species, is natural? Like it's not something that, uh, that we can control. Like it's a, it's a natural occurrence. Um, it's mixed, right? Uh, what you're talking about is natural, natural background extinction rate. And most assuredly, that, that occurs. And there are a lot of these species that are kind of considered relictual. You know, they... they um, declined uh, after you know, after the ice age or something, um, and the question then becomes, what what role do human beings have uh, in hastening that decline? And even if human beings don't have a role, um, 
what should we do about it? I think there's there's other questions beneath that that are that are even more serious, um, and you know they they regard what is a species. Uh, when when we mention that word species and the Endangered Species Act, we're using it in a legal, not a biological context. It in, incorporates subspecies, distinct populations, sometimes varieties of plants. And all these things get hazier and hazier, and the groups, the groupings get smaller and smaller. And with each smaller grouping, any human activity that affects it seems greater. Therefore, everything's endangered. You know, <laughs> basically, if if uh, it's really easy to be endangered, you know, special and unique, uh, they've they've eliminated the, the meaning of the word special and unique, right? Um, not everything's endangered, and um, when you when you look at the numbers and the program, that's certainly imp- certainly the impression people have been given. Well, it just seems like so much of not just the environmental movement, but the um, doomsday prophets, the people who are constantly <clears throat> predicting the apocalypse, whether it's climate or or whatever. Um, they take natural phenomenon, um, you know, like, you know, global warming right now is natural. <clears throat> um, you know, so many changes, um, you know, the, the erosion of coastline is natural. It's been happening since the beginning of time, right? Coastlines change. That's what they do. Nothing stays the same. Um, and, and these things are, are measured and turned into crises. Um, at least that's what I saw while working on Capitol Hill, and um, you were there for a long, long time. I mean, you know what? A person can almost accuse you of being a swamp creature, but somehow you came out like with integrity. You're actually uh, holding accountable the government rather than, uh, you know, selling out and lobbying on behalf of, I don't know, I won't name any names. Uh, but, you know, it's it's really refreshing to to hear from you. Um, what can we do if, if, if somehow responsible people ever get the government back? After all you've seen, what would you do to try to bring accountability to endangered species work? Well, that's that's a huge question. Um, but, and of course, I ask uh, you with three minutes in the segment. Of course, right? I, I mean, there there are, the good news is there are lots of things you could do to improve the program, right? Because it's it's so terrible right now. Uh, right now, it kind of pits people against wildlife and. Uh, one of a, f- a former regional director of Fish and Wildlife from Texas said, hey, um, the incentives are all wrong here. If I find gold on my property, the value goes up. If I find an endangered species, the value goes down. Right. And that's not what you want to do. If you you want to give people incentives to recover things, you've, so you've got to protect their private property. We obviously need much stricter scientific standards. I'd love to see the state's. Uh, really uh, more in the driver's seat when we're talking about species that fall just within their states uh, rather than this ever-growing federal list that's basically used for national land use control. So there's a whole lot of things we can do. But with regard to um, uh, these crises, that that crisis mode, there's good news out there in that it's things aren't all disappearing. Moose, elk, black bear, mountain lion, uh, beaver, uh, I could go on and on and on. All these things are actually uh, have increased 
substantially in number and range over the last century. And when we're talking about 1,700 uh, endangered species, we're talking often about subspecies, varieties of plants. Uh, I think more than half of the mammals on the list are subspecies, for example. So the, the picture is a lot brighter with regard to wildlife and biodiversity and much more disturbing with regard to implementation of the Endangered Species Act. Okay, I've got um, very little time left. One question for you. This is a yes or no question. Um, is it possible that 100% of U.S. land, I don't mean federal land, I mean all land, um, actually contains an endangered species, whether it's a plant or an animal? In other words, could the federal government justify taking jurisdiction and control over 100% of our land on the basis that there's an endangered species potentially occupying that land? Is that possible? Almost 100, you know, it's close enough. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it is vast. I think there's uh, over, you take the state of California, more than two times that area has been, I believe, designated as critical habitat. And there's even greater amounts that are affected by uh, other aspects of endangered species regulation. So it's vast. And that's just one act out of so many, so many. And hundreds of thousands of federal regulations, uh, many of them criminal, with criminal penalties. Uh, So that's where we stand. I'm all sunshiny today. Talking to Rob Gordon. Rob Gordon was on the Hill. He was in the agencies, uh, interior and otherwise, 30 years of experience talking about a new report by Western Caucus Foundation uh, on Endangered Species Act and where we are after 50 years. Rob, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, uh, it was absolutely a pleasure to uh, join you and would just like to direct your your viewers and listeners to um, the Western Caucus Foundation website where they can pick up this report. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Rob, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You're listening to the Jackie Daly Show. Did you know that the sun had a bit of a storm last week that disrupted radio signals in South America, like bigly, in North America somewhat? Um, and there were pilots, you know, reporting communications failures. Literally, this is what I've been talking about for years with the EMP, electromagnetic pulse, whether it's a weapon or whether it's the sun doing this naturally. Basically, the sun has weather. It has storms. It misbehaves. It throws tantrums. And when it does, according to Blaze Media, I have an article here from the Blaze, um, it can, you know actually do far worse than things that we barely noticed you you know i was in mexico uh i was on the beach i didn't notice a thing um but if you were in south america you definitely definitely uh noticed assuming you were consuming media this is a major radio blackout is how they described it um it's according to the u.s federal government quote likely one of the largest solar radio events ever recorded, unquote, caused by, you know, explosions on the surface of the sun. Um, here's the deal. We are overdue for a major sunstorm. 
because they happen about once every 150 years. The last one was called the Carrington event, and it, it was um, recorded primarily in Canada, it, like was its um, focal point. And back then, it wasn't a big deal. All it did was burn down telegraph stations, like international wire stations. There wasn't a whole lot in the way of electric grids or, or technology that we relied on. Today, this would be catastrophic. If we burned the U.S. electric grids, there are three of them basically, and a lot of minor you know, sub-grids, Texas has its own. There's an eastern grid and a western grid. If you fried those grids, it's game over. Like, game over. Because it would take about 18 months to manufacture the transformers that we would need to rebuild it. And all of the substations, uh, I mean, you know, what was not a big deal to a farmer in Canada you know, plowing a field with beasts of burden in 1859 is a really big deal now. And apparently, last week, we had just a little brush uh, with what could happen. But it disrupts electromagnetic fields. It's, um, you know, it's, it's I, I cannot overstate what a big deal this would be, and we're due. We're due. I've been working with the federal government and also Texas state government for years to try to get them to harden the grid against exactly this kind of of problem. Fortunately, nothing catastrophic happened. Um, but, you know, I'm seeing here, like, this is reported by The Blaze. A geomagnetic storm could adversely disrupt railway systems, turning train signals from red to green. Oh, we could do a lot more than that. A lot more than that. Um, I had a guy on the show, Bill Forstian. He wrote a book called One Second After which is like a, a fictional book trying to describe to you what would happen if we had this electromagnetic pulse sunstorm or a weapon that simulates exactly that same effect. We know that Russia has it, North Korea has it, other enemies have it. They would launch it by satellite. It would detonate like 50 miles above the U.S. eastern seaboard. You wouldn't feel anything, you wouldn't hear anything, but all electronics would be destroyed fried in your car, your phone, your the other grid, all electronics, um, you know, life support at the hospital, everything. So totally catastrophic and actually totally preventable. We have ways to harden our grid to, to keep this from destroying the grid. Uh, the Israelis have done it. The UK has, Russia has, China has, I think Iran has, but for some reason, we can't seem to get our policymakers here to care. I actually know exactly what the reason is. Um, I've shared it before, but basically imagine this. Unlike probably all of those other countries, the U.S. electric grid is privately owned by private business because in this country, electricity was created by the private sector, right? And like General Electric was the big deal. Um, we kept it that way. In other countries, the electric grid is owned by the government. It is absolutely, you know, a national asset, just like oil and gas is, you know, an asset of the government everywhere but here. This is the one country where you get to own the oil and gas under your feet. So, you know, there, there are great things about this, um, but it, what's difficult is the private companies say to the government, 
Stop putting more regulation on us. Don't make us do all this costly stuff to protect the grid. You know, we're not the military. We're not the Department of Homeland Security. Why should we have to pay for this? And so there you have it. The lobbyists for the utilities in particular just argue they don't want to pay for it. And I'm saying as a citizen, look, I hate paying taxes. I think we're ridiculously fleeced and overtaxed. But this is one thing I'm willing to pay for. There are several things I'm willing to pay for. National defense, protecting a border, for example, protecting the grid. We can't live without it. So here, last week, this story proves, again, how vulnerable we are. Yet there's nothing you can do. There's absolutely nothing any of us can do to stop a solar storm. Nothing. A coronal mass ejection. You know, a solar flare. Nothing. And in fact, by the way, the sun is the number one determinant of how warm the earth is. And we can't do one thing to control it. Not one thing. What we can do is here on the ground, do what we can't, what we know works, what, what the Israelis have done, what the Brits have done to protect ourselves. So, you know, this, this is the biggest failure, in my opinion, of the state of Texas. We, we're a great state. We have a lot going right. But we can protect our own grid. We're the only state that has our own grid. We could absolutely do this. It's totally within our control. No other state has this ability. Every other state is either part of the Eastern grid or the Western grid and has to negotiate with all of these other states and the feds to protect themselves. We could do this. And we have the money. We have this massive rainy day fund, mostly comprised of severance taxes from oil and gas production. If it weren't for oil and gas, we wouldn't have that $32 billion sitting there that everybody is anxious to devour, by the way. I mean, everybody saddled up at the trough down there in Austin wanting some of that money. We can afford this. <sighs> if you're interested in this at all, you can actually go to the Space Weather Prediction Center. The Space Weather Prediction Center that really exists and go there and they'll show you space weather. I mean, I know you have a lot to keep up with. You don't need just one more thing before the holidays, but I think it's really, really cool. So what else? Let me say something. Let me get off the depressing, uh, you know, threats to your well-being this season. Move on to something else. Hey, good news. Um, what have I got? I've got a minute and a half. Okay, maybe I don't have time to talk about all of this. Um, but I will tell you, yeah, here's a piece of good news. The United States is producing more oil than any country in history right now. Right now. I mean, this is what I keep telling you. Number one, um, the president gets way too much credit and way too much blame for a lot of things. Oil production is one. Obviously, Joe Biden said he would end fossil fuels, whatever that means. Um, and he's not doing a very good job. That's because a lot of this is not under his control. It's actually uh, governed by the states and not the feds often. And let's be serious, wherever there's money to be made, people will find a way to muddle around the, you know, the, the obstacles and make it. Um, but this is great. Right, It means we are the Saudi Arabia of oil and natural gas and coal and nuclear. 
13.3 million barrels of de- a day of crude and condensate during the fourth quarter of this year. Wow. So, hey. And, you know, the price is high. That's bad for consumers, but good for, good for producers. Um, good for the state of Texas. What did I just say about the rainy day fund? All those severance taxes? 13.3 million barrels a day. Most of it, the majority coming from West Texas. But that's not our only shale play, right? We've got the Eagle Ford in the south. And you know, we've got over the Haynesville stretching over into Louisiana. you got plenty up there in Wichita Falls area, uh, Amarillo. Uh, and clearly the, the granddaddy is the Permian. We've got a lot, a lot of energy in this state. Okay, got to go to break. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Mm-hmm. 